Hello, everyone, and welcome to Volume 7, Issue 342 of the Kane and Rince podcast. In this issue, we will be covering Final Fantasy VI. But before we uh, begin that uh, chat, let's talk about upcoming issues in this volume. Um, so play along with the show. Um, upcoming uh, issues include Horizon Zero Dawn, Mario Kart Double Dash, Ghouls and Ghosts, Resident Evil 6, and The Last Guardian. You can find our full schedule over at canaanrince.com. If you're a you know fan of the show and uh, you fancy giving something back... Um, that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Rints. Your contribution helps go towards funding equipment and all of that kind of stuff um, that helps make the show sound really good and, and just keeps us afloat. So if you fancy giving something back, that would be much appreciated. Um, in return for your contribution, you'll gain access to podcasts earlier than everyone else. Sometimes um, you get uh, slightly longer podcasts than go out on the main feed. We have a strict two-hour limit um, uh, for the main feed, but uh, the Patreon versions of the show, sometimes they can go um, over that limit. So it's worth subscribing just to get those extra little bits of waffle uh, in between the actual meat of the conversation. Um, You'll also get access to um, a little mini podcast between Leon and Jay where they talk about games they've been playing recently and just general updates on the uh, state of Cane and Rinse and what we're up to. Um, And also, you will get uh, a limited exclusivity on the console specials. So um, right now, if you you subscribe to Patreon, you'll get access to the PlayStation console special um, before anyone else. That will eventually be made public, but for now, it's only for uh, Patreon subscribers. You can help us by subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on whatever podcast app is um, your preferred choice. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Joining me, Joshua Garrity, in issue 342 are Leah Haydu. Hello. John Salmon. Hello. And joining a special guest, Mayor Santandrea. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Final Fantasy VI, um, a JRPG developed by Square and published by Square. So some important names associated with this. Hironobu Sakaguchi, um, who's been um, heavily involved with the Final Fantasy series up to this point, um, actually stepped down from directing duties. He serves as producer on this title. There were various reasons for this. Um, he got promoted within the company, so he had a lot more duties. So um, instead, um, he passed on uh, directing duties to Yoshinori Katase, who would go on to direct uh, direct games like Chrono Trigger, uh, Final Fantasy VII, and Final Fantasy VIII, um, and also Hiro, uh, Hiroyuki Ito. 
who was also the lead designer on on Final Fantasy VI. Um, obviously, uh, Nobuo Uematsu again returns to uh, do music, and uh, uh, Yoshitaka um, Amano um, uh, comes back as uh, chief character artist, amongst many other artists who. Uh, we may or may not bring up during the recording. So the original Super Famicom, Super Nintendo uh, version of the game was released in Japan, April 1994. Um, and then in North, Ameri- uh, in North America, October 1994. Did not get a uh, European release until the PS1 entry. So in Japan, the PS1 version came out in March 1999. In North America, September 1999. And us us lot in, in Europe had to wait until 2002. So yeah, uh, there was also a semi-remake, not really, but sort of remake for the GBA. Um, the most notable change is the... Uh, um, retranslation, um, which we'll go into in, into in a bit. Uh, but the Japanese version came out in November 2006, North America, February 2007, and in the EU, July 2007. Uh, there was also a Wii U virtual console release in 2011, uh, iOS release in 2014, Android 2014, and then the much reviled uh, PC version, which came out in December uh, 2015. Uh, the Wii, there was a version released Um, for Wii U, but it only came out in Japan uh, in December 2015. Reviews for this uh, were very, very positive. Um, If you go over to game rankings, the average is around 94% for the SNES version, uh, 91% for the GBA version, and 92% for the mobile version. Couldn't really get any uh, solid stats on the PC or uh, PS1 version. I'm sure Metacritic has some uh, 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 data for that, but we're trying to avoid using them due to the weighted average that they have. Um, But anyway, um, sales. Um, The only uh, solid sales figures that I could get were for the SNES version. So according to VG Charts, uh, the SNES version sold roughly uh, 3.42 million uh, copies worldwide. I'm going to issue a big, massive spoiler warning. Um, This is definitely a game that can be spoiled uh, if you care about the story of Final Fantasy VI and you have not played it, please go finish it before carrying on with this issue. Uh, let's launch into our histories uh, with this particular game. Um, let's start with our guest, Maya. My history with this game is long. I have an almost 20-year relationship with this game. It's pretty difficult to imagine anything topping it as my all-time number one game of all time. I specifically asked to be on this episode of Kane and Rinse because this is my favorite game, period. It's probably the longest game that I've replayed the most times, and I almost always find something new in it every time I play it. So in a lot of ways, I've sort of grown with it. Each time I replay it, I relate to different things. Um, I'll react to a certain character in a way that I haven't before. So I don't want to say too much more about it because we'll definitely get into the details as we go. But I think it's worth saying right off the top, this is my all-time favorite and it has been with me 
for a good deal of my life. So that's my own personal history. Leah. So I've made reference to the fact that I didn't have a Super Nintendo when I was younger. Uh, So I did not play this game when it first came out. And um, I I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but it is worth noting that in uh, the U.S. at least, I I don't know what the situation was when it was released in the EU. I I imagine it was probably Final Fantasy VI right off the bat, because I believe that's what the PlayStation version uh, is and was, but um, this was actually released as Final Fantasy III in uh, the United States the first time on the SNES because Final Fantasies two, three, and five never came out in the West until much later. So all we had at that point would have been Final Fantasy one, Final Fantasy four, which was released as Final Fantasy two, and then this one, Final Fantasy six, which was released as Final Fantasy three. So I'm sure that there were a lot of very confused people when they went straight from three to seven, even though there was nothing actually in between those uh, in any territory. But I did not know anything about that when it first came out. I first played uh, Final Fantasy VI as Final Fantasy VI on the PS1 version. Uh, It was not my first Final Fantasy. It was um, somewhere uh, in the middle, I guess, of the ones that I played through. And uh, I really liked it. For a long time, it was not really up there for me. Like It was a good game, but it wasn't one that I, I necessarily thought of a whole lot. But the more I kind of go through it and the more I play it, I, I think I just, I just kind of get more of a great appreciation for a lot of what they did here. Uh, and especially now that we are doing the series on the Final Fantasy games, I think that my views have changed quite a bit um, just because I have a comparison point that is very close uh, because it's not often or ever up until now that I I really play through the games in order with not a whole lot of time in between them. So uh, for comparison's sake, I think that it's it's um, aged very well in my esteem and that my uh, views on it have really actually only gotten better over time. Um, I, I don't, I'm not quite as huge a fan as Maya, <laughs> but I do, uh, I do uh, really like the game. I've played through it a number of times. The most recent time um, for this uh, particular recording, I played through it on my, uh, my Super Nintendo Mini, uh, which comes with it by default. That's not even one that you have to uh, put on there through mostly legal means it's it's there just by itself and uh, so that was the first time i had actually played the super nintendo version the final fantasy 3 version um and yeah so i guess we'll get into a little bit more of what some of the differences are and uh, kind of how that affects our playthroughs but um i have i have a pretty decent history with this game i guess you'd say i have played it through a number of times and um yeah that's that's kind of where i stand at this point again i'm the baby of kane and rinse uh and not for much longer actually but uh i i am no Known as the baby of Kane and Rince. I was four years old when this game <sighs> came out, uh, so Shut I did up. not play it. <laughs> I did not play it at the time. But yeah, it's 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 been one of those ones. As I've said in the, the <clears throat> previous issues of this series, um, uh, my my first experience with the Final Fantasy series is with the PlayStation One entries, and and as time got you know went on, and I got more engaged with the with the conversation around video games and, you know, became, became a part of Ken Rince and all that jazz, uh, I, I became more and more aware of the reputation Final Fantasy VI 
um, had. And, and the, the, the Super Nintendo was a console that entirely passed me by. And one of my, you know, objectives um, with with Kane and Rince has been to try and slowly fill fill in the gaps um, with, with that console in particular. Um, uh, Super Metroid, Super Mario World, uh, Chrono Trigger, all of those games have become firm favourites of mine and, and Final Fantasy VI was one of those those entries that just kind of hung over me as like, oh, come on, Josh, you need to play this at some point. And um, having, having you know, a, a deadline uh, really helps um, sometimes uh, when, it, when it gets, when you really want to get a game off your backlog. And um, I'm really, really glad um, that I uh, ended up uh, agreeing to be part of this series, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because of this game. Um, we'll go into it uh, late, uh, later, but... Um, yeah, I ended so I do actually own the PlayStation 1 version on Vita. Um but uh as was the case of the previous entry, um the loading times are uh, excruciating, so I did opt uh to go the naughty route of uh emulating the Super Nintendo version on uh, on PC. Um, and yeah, I, I breezed through it, um, uh, admittedly using a walkthrough, but, um, I, yeah, I managed to get through the game in about 30 hours and, um, yeah, we'll talk about my thoughts and feelings in a bit. Uh, John. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I've probably said this at the beginning of every one of these shows that we've done. Uh, I had no previous Final Fantasy experience at all before a few years ago outside of, obviously it being very much in the cultural zeitgeist and having seen bits and pieces and played tiny little bits and pieces. But I've essentially just gone through and played these games in order now from one to six, mostly over the course of the last year while we've been doing these podcasts. Um, and, but this was this was a game that I was always very familiar with as being, ah, how rude do I want to be about people on this podcast? This was the Final Fantasy game that all of the cool people said was the best one, not the nerds who like seven or eight. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'd, I'd always been very interesting. Interested. Mm, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd been interested in this because it sounded more my style than the later games in the series. Um, and when I was, you know, doing roughly the same as Josh a few years ago, kind of thinking about some games in my backlog that I probably should have played at some point, a few of those games ended up being like SNES era RPGs. And um, I thought at that point I really should play Final Fantasy VI, especially because I'd recently played the first one and, and liked it a lot at that time. Um, so I sort of put that aside and thought, well, this is this is something I'll get to at some point. And then it was announced it was going to be available on the SNES Mini. So it seemed the obvious choice to kind of wait and get a SNES Mini and play it on that. And then the idea of doing the podcast came up and I got roped into it because I was one of, I guess, a few people who played the first Final Fantasy game. So it seemed like the obvious choice of, well, just play through them and kind of work up to what you originally wanted to do. And yeah, same again, same deal as Josh. I've played it over the last couple of weeks and finished it earlier today. So I briefly want to talk about the localization of this game, mainly because it's the the biggest difference between um, the 
two most popular versions of this game so the uh super nintendo version and the gba version but also i think um localization is going to increasingly become a point of contention as the series goes on uh less so um here but um definitely in the next issue i think uh localization becomes a bit of a problem so so according to um an interview by superplay magazine um uh, in 1995 uh, translator ted wolsey um talked about a lot of the elements that were removed uh, essentially removed from uh, the original japanese version to make this game in nintendo us's eyes more pal- palatable for the western audience so a lot of the uh playfulness and and sexuality and all of that stuff um that was in the script um in the japanese script was uh, softened significantly um when translated to english There's also kind of references to religion like holy was renamed to pearl bars were turned into cafes particularly uh sexual uh uh, graphics in the game were toned down significantly. Basically, a lot of bottoms were covered up with clothing. That's been a point of contention for the community. Um, a lot of people felt, uh, reading on forums online, it feels like a lot of people wished that uh, Nintendo of America stayed more true to the original version, but um, they would get a sort of compromise with the GBA version. Um, so it was uh, retranslated by Tom Slattery. He preserved a lot of the, the the character names, location names that were used in the original translation by Wolsey, but some of the the spell names and stuff like that, most notoriously, um, you know, Phoenix Down was you know, spelt correctly in the GBA version uh, versus the uh, SNES version, which has an incorrect uh, spelling of Phoenix. Um, so, yeah, the GBA version isn't quite, it isn't the same as the Japanese script, but it it is uh, significantly closer to the Japanese script. So just a question that I want to pose to you guys um, before we really launch into the story and stuff. Uh, do you, do you, having played this game for the show or in the past, do you feel like you're, you're missing out due to this, uh, due to the choices made when localizing the game? Most of the things that have been mentioned so far, I don't feel like make a tremendous difference. Uh, like the Holy Pearl, the bar cafe, you know, it's the putting, oh, I, I have uh, seen, you, you can find on, on um, online some like side-by-side comparisons of some of the, um, the sprites for, I, I believe it's mostly for like bosses and some enemy sprites who uh, have essentially clothing edited onto them in 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 bits like it's just it just reads as silly to me like oh look she's wearing tiny little shorts now because god forbid we see a a, a 
a butt cheek or something like I, I don't know it, it that that to me doesn't really bother me there are a couple of places um I, i've done I, i'm fascinated by localization and i've um i've done a little bit of reading about this and what i find the most glaring about some of the localization choices especially in the original version that came out in the west are things like there is a scene kind of towards the middle of the game where um it's it's kind of after the big event that happens that um that kind of divides the game into into two world maps you start out with um celeste who is uh kind of the one of the first ones that you come back with uh after this happens and um you know there's a, I, I won't go into the whole story thing but there's a, a lot of uh traumatic things that happen and you get a scene of her kind of running up and she runs up to this cliff and the, <laughs> the translation I, i'm not sure about the gba version because uh i i don't remember honestly if i've played that or not if i have it's been quite some time um but in both i believe the ps1 version and the uh the snes version the the scene is meant to say the line is something to the effect of well sid had always told her that there were these people who would take this leap of faith when they felt bad and it made them it cheered them up that's not what the scene is the scene is her attempting suicide and that's really dark but it fits because she has just had this horrible experience and you know you you get it's so sanitized in that way and that that i don't like i don't like it when they change the meaning of things like you can change what they're called all you want but that kind of thing is is really what what kind of bothers me for me just personally because i love this character so much uh the character that you get your airship from his name is setzer he has a friend that is a rival of his but it's very much implied that they had some kind of a a flirtatiousness or at least the hint of a romantic relationship between them and she dies tragically and there's a line that she says where it's 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 so perfect for the two of them because they're such you know they have such a playful friendly comp uh competition between each other and the line that she says in the Ted Woolsey versions is something like oh do you enjoy chewing on my wake which doesn't even make any sense first of all I'm pretty sure airships don't produce a wake. You know, it's not a it's not a ship going through water, so it's not even really the same thing. But the original line was something analogous to, "Oh, I'm I'm beating you. Oh, hurry up back there, or do you just like staring at my ass?" <laughs> so she's intent she's intentionally leading him on and being a little playful in that way, which I thought was oh, that's such a perfect line for that dynamic, and yet it is. Like you were saying, Josh, it's a little bit censored in the American version. One of the things I also appreciate about some of the other localizations is that Biggs and Wedge are given their proper names from the very, very beginning of the game. There's a ton of Star Wars references in Final Fantasy VI, and that was one of the big ones. And Ted Woolsey kind of messed it up. So I like the fact that they are given their original names, what they were supposed to be in, um, for instance, the GBA version. Yeah. Yes. Um, let's move on from localization and um, uh, just kind of talk about the general setup and, and the state of the world. Um, so you start the game, um, you see three mechs appear on screen, uh, one of which is occupied by um, essentially the lead character, Terra, uh, and you're marching through the snow. And I just want to get 
you know, first impressions from from all of you. Leah, why, why don't you start us well, off? Well, I will say that having just, this is one of those things that you really notice having just come off of Final Fantasy V is it looks so much better. Like, I, I did not think that Final Fantasy yeah. V was a bad looking game, but the sprite art and the backgrounds and it just it looks so good right off the bat because you have these three characters and kind of over the the opening sequence and the opening credits before you ever get any control over any characters you get a lot of the story or where you're going to be beginning in the story you're kind of you know you have the in media rest thing of where you are dropped right into it and you don't really know who these people are if you haven't played this game before you don't know that this is going to be one of the main characters that you are dealing with and yeah it's i i think that it is much better at being interesting and intriguing right off the bat than some of the earlier most of the earlier entries Mm, it starts off with that very cool um like is it a text uh, text scroll and then they've got Mm -hmm. the um the little mode seven sequence with the essentially like the camera following behind the mechs as they're walking forwards in in sort of a a second or a third person viewpoint with that really like really really iconic final fantasy six um overworld theme playing behind them and I was I was watching that thinking, wow, this is a this is a huge step up from all of these previous games I've played. Like, you know, completely justified in wanting to have played this game rather than playing it out of obligation. Yeah, the production values are just so amped up here. You can tell right off the bat. They do their best in the very limited graphics that they had at the time to make the opening look cinematic, and yeah. it's really mind blowing. I, I I literally mind blown when I first saw this. It was unlike anything I'd seen before, and I immediately fell in love with it. I think this opening sequence is up there with like Mass Effect Two and Bioshock as some of my favorite beginnings for any video game. It's it's I think one of the best. It's there's something so incredible about feeling like you you don't even like you said they you don't even really know who these characters are yet. And yet you have so much power and to, to know that you're, you're in these basically death machines marching towards a completely unsuspecting little quiet mining town. They have absolutely no idea what's coming for them, but you do. It just, oh, it just sends a chill down my spine every single time. And I've played this game so many times and it still gets to me. It still has that effect on me even now. Um, I I actually did replay this for this recording just to refresh my memory of some of those things. And that beginning segment with the opening credits still gets to me. It's it's a pretty powerful thing. Um so I yeah. just I just find this this opening so powerful. The music complements it perfectly. Um I love almost everything about it. You know, having having played pretty much all the games in the series up to this point, I I don't think it can be understated how much of a uh, visual improvement it, this is. But I think the thing that was missing for me in five was a palpable sense of atmosphere and tone. Um, it's not just the fact that the sprites look better; they do. But it's not just that; it's the the effects and everything, and the music and the sound design are all creating something um, rich on the screen um, that that really sucks you in. Let's just talk about the world and 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 the kind of inspirations and stuff. Like, what what? Do, how do we feel about this? 
place. Um, l- let's just stick to the the world of balance for now. We we can talk about the world of ruin later on. But just as a general setup, like um, the 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 way everything fits together in this world and 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 all the different factions, like how do we feel about it? Uh, Maya, why why don't you start us off? Well, first of all, I think a lot of this game is made by its characters. So I might just start off with talking about Terra a little yeah. bit. I think that having her as a protagonist is a is a fantastic idea. I don't think there were any, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, you're a little bit more familiar with this than I am. In the previous entries, I don't think there was a really central female protagonist up until now. There have been kind of again, co-protagonists, but to have, not in the exactly. same way. So to have her take front and center... And to have no idea who she is straight off the bat, I thought was a great idea. Journey being one of self-discovery and finding what her identity is, figuring out her place in the world is a pretty strong, um, is a pretty strong character, frankly. And I identified with her right away. This was something I could absolutely grab onto, uh, just as, you know, being a, a basically a teenager when I first played this and going into my early 20s, continuing on with that, uh, not really knowing where I fit in the world and trying to kind of discover my own identity and what I was going to do and who I was as a person. So she enters this world as, as she's special, but doesn't realize that she is. She seems to have a strange reaction to the espers, which are magical creatures that in the past have infused their magic onto people. So whenever she's around them, something strange seems to happen. She wants to do the right thing, but has pretty much no idea what that is. When the game starts out, she's pretty lost and pretty confused, and she seems to be sort of just going wherever the wind is blowing her. She's been under the control of the Empire for such a long time that when that crown is removed, she almost has no memories. She has little flashes of what's happened here and there. And this is where you first see Kefka, the main villain, and you see Emperor Gestal, who is pretty much in charge of everything. He is our Emperor Palpatine, essentially. And right away, you get a very universal message of, we have to figure out what this is. We have to figure out who Terra is, what she's capable of, and how we can use that to defeat the empire that is basically wreaking havoc and could possibly restart this war of the magi which we've already been told was disastrous so already the stakes are pretty high they're trying to get magic back out there in the world which everyone knows is dangerous they're infusing metal giants with magic they're infusing people with magic something is going to go wrong at some point and they keep waging war all over the place so the rebellion and the empire is really integral to this first part of the game when you're still in the world of balance. That's really the focal point is these people need to be stopped. This really ties into what I was thinking, which is that I really love how the fact that there is magic and that there are espers in this world is not something that they take for granted. And that's something that tends to happen to a greater or lesser degree. There's usually some kind of explanation in the games, but it's not always 
the focal point. It, it's it's often just something that people can do. You take it for granted that this person can cast healing magic because that's just what they do, or this person can cast black magic because they're a black mage, and you know nobody nobody really thinks that's especially weird. Here, it is a very special thing that there are people who can do this, and it's it's a plot point rather than just being a mechanic. I think that that is a really fascinating thing that they have done and i like it a lot it's it makes it a fascinating way to play into the um the way that you set up your characters and stuff as well the way that this is kind of every single character in this has a job class but it's not specifically deigned as this is your blue mage this is your white mage this is your you know bard this is your dancer it's just that each of the characters kind of have their moves and you can you can kind of swap and change things between them, but they're also set in their own ways and it ties into their backstories a lot as well. Like it's, it seems a much more um, meaningful way of doing it than, say, Final Fantasy V, where it was like, this person could literally be anything, and if you want them to, they can be everything. You know, it kind of takes that uh, character development away from them, whereas in this, you know, Shadow is always going to be a ninja, but he can also be a ninja who throws, you know, flaming swords at people at the same time. <laughs> it just, it it felt so much more organic to me and made you feel so much more for the characters because of the way that they do that. We've started talking um, about the characters, so I think we should launch um, fully into that. So Will from the forum says, As a dyed-in-the-wool final fanboy in the 90s, I was tremendously excited when Final Fantasy VI uh, came out on the SNES. Uh, To my chagrin, however, I initially bounced off the game and never finished it as a teenager. While I had uh, loved Cecil's uh, propulsively paced hero's journey in 4... Uh, Final Fantasy VI left me cold. The story felt lumpy, the tone felt off. Who even was the main character anyway? I also struggled with a lot of the combat innovations that Ito brought to the game, which upped the difficulty and massively reduced the fun factor for me. Of course, I love the opera scene and the World of Ruin turn was exciting, a bit telegraphed by the map that came packed with the cartridge, but overall the game didn't feel uh, uh, didn't feel consistent or fun and I just kept getting lost and bored. Returning to the game today, however, I'm totally in love. Gameplay that felt haphazard to me then feels experimental and dazzling today the music and sound design are evocative and rightly considered iconic instead of instead of one central main character six has an amazing collection of parallel stories that bounce off each other narratively and thematically as an adult and as a dad i definitely relate differently now to boring melancholy things like terror's role as a mother figure or cyan's goodbye to his family and the actually silly stuff that I was too cool for back then, looking at you, Octopus, planning to drop a four-ton weight on an opera singer, now seems uh, delightfully whimsical. I think part of my initial disengagement came from the fact that Six is the first Final Fantasy to really require the internet or a strategy guide. Replaying now, I love how the structure united Final Fantasy 4 and 5 with a fast-paced, mostly linear world of balance populated with distinctively powered characters that is broken into a chaotic, freeform world of ruin. 
Even today, however, I still need to peek at a game FAQ now and again to remember where to find this item or that person. It's amazing that there's so much to discover, but that's cold comfort if you left shadow on the floating continent or opened all those chests in the world of balance, so won't be getting that ribbon you really need. With Sakaguchi in a reduced role, there, there are also some changes that come back to bite the series in the long run. It's a matter of record that several different developers created characters and scenarios in isolation and then Katase stitched them all together. When framed with Mog's 4-4 breaking narration, this feels charming, but that lack of central vision also lays some groundwork for the mess of unrelated corridors that broke Final Fantasy XIII. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Magisite is a fun idea, but it has the potential to flatten every character into the same pool of high DPS spells. And a young Turk named Tetsuya Nomura also brings an aesthetic to Shadow and Setsa that will come to dominate and eventually drown Square in a tsunami of spiked hair and buckles. Final Fantasy VI is both the culmination of everything that made Final Fantasy I through V great and the first inkling of the excess that has sometimes swamped the series in the past few years. Before we talk about the kind of individual characters and their nuances, how do we feel about this change um, uh, from five to six of kind of removing uh, those job that job system and replacing it with something um, where uh, you know effectively every character can learn every spell in the game? Well, that's the same thing that can happen in five. It takes a lot longer in five, but um, but yeah, I mean yeah. you can. If you spend enough time on any Final Fantasy game, and I think I can say this because I have played all the Final Fantasy games, if you spend enough time on them, you can pretty much turn any party into a raging death machine. And to some extent, that's kind of what I want. Um, I, I, I like this setup because... As, as you say, Josh, they're in the beginning parts of the game, they do feel uh, they do feel like they have a lot more uh, distinguishing features as individual characters. But as you go on, you don't have to get them all into the you can you can if you want to. And I I did. And this was, in fact, my recommendation when when there was some discussion in our Slack channel about what do you want to do? And I believe my answer was get Ultima, get that thing that gives you the one MP cast and win. Um, but I, you can do that. And that's what I did towards the end of the game. But there's also things that each character can do that no other character will ever be able to do except for gogo who's a special case but um y you know nobody else is ever going to be able to transform into an esper except for Terra. nobody else is ever going to be able to do um to do the relic move which absorbs magic except for celeste you know it's there's there are things that each character will continue to have that no other character has. Uh, and, and those things, depending on how you use them and depending on what else you do and how your party setup works, that will be more or less useful, usually less as you as you near the end of the game. But there are still those things that you can uh, kind of set up your party to take advantage of. And so I, I think that it's you can definitely break this game very easily. Um, and 
<laughs> that's that's just something that I appreciate that there is an option for because I really like marching into the last boss fight and just chain casting Ultima until everything just dies. But that's if that's not what you want to do, if you want to have your character specialize, you can absolutely do that. Um, but it also leads to things um, like really cool speed runs and really just fascinating things that you can also do with your party once you if you want to spend a lot of time playing different ways, you can do that, too. So I, I, I actually like the setup a lot. You know, what's really wild is after finishing this and doing a bit of research this afternoon, the second quote unquote half of this game in the world of ruin you can finish it with three characters. You need mm-hmm. three people to go to Kefka's Tower to split into three parties. That is it. I had 14, but you can do it with three. I'm assuming that's like the Final Fantasy VI version of doing a soul level one run in a Dark Souls uh, probably, game. Probably, yeah. Of just get the ones who are you know, absolutely necessary to progress the story and go to the Yeah, end. I mean, there were characters that I never used in the second half of the game, but I went and got them anyway just because I wanted to to do all of the content and I wanted to have them available just in case. But you, you don't, there is a lot streamline is the wrong word because that implies that some of it is kind of useless, but you can, you can, um, specialize very heavily if you want to like if you really dislike one of the characters you can just kind of leave them where they are um (laughs) so uh, that's that's an option you can play pretty much however you would like as long as you spend the time to make them powerful enough to survive but you kind of you want to get all the characters and and see all of their little side quests and things because this is what this game reminded me of was um, Mass Effect 2 mm. going around mm-hmm. and recruiting your party and doing their loyalty missions and kind of you kind of resolve all of their little stories and some of them are so good like Cyan's story where he sees his he kind of he comes to terms with having his family die on screen they die as you're watching it his wife and child and you you kind of play out his nightmare and you come to terms with it it's so sweet and horrible at the same time but if you don't do all of those things you miss out on so much i think the comparison to mass effect 2 for the second half of the game is very appropriate it really is like going out and rebuilding your team and doing the loyalty missions and like you guys mentioned there are very good rewards to be had and in a lot of cases it just adds to that character development um if you if you take the time to go out and find all of your compatriots again. As far as the original question of how the using the Magicite and using the Espers can make the characters feel kind of the same and have the same skill set, I think for me, it comes down to checking your stats for each character and playing around with relics. Because I think it's beneficial for almost every character to have a lot of gray magic in their skill set. There's almost always a benefit to having spells like stop, sleep, mute. Any character can cast that, and, and those spells are not necessarily tied to magic power stat. So if you have, say, a character like, for instance, Saban, I'm just going to use him as an example, he doesn't have, even with his best equipment, his magic power is not that great. It's really nowhere near compared to Terra or Celeste or even Realm. It may not really make sense for you to have Ultima on a character like Sabin, 
his magic power is not going to be that great. And it takes, it costs a lot of MP to cast that spell. Sabin is probably better off using relics that either boost his defense or his just battle power in general, or really trying to up his magic as much as possible and cast Bum Rush over and over again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bum Rush yeah. is one of his, is, is a very powerful attack. It's barrier piercing. It is, it can't be reflected. It is one of those special things about him that, like you said, Leah, only Gogo can do a blitz attack because he's a, or, or she, depending on who you talk to. Gogo is a mimic. So only that character can kind of replicate the bum rush technique and his fire dance and everything else. That is unique to him. Uh, someone like Edgar, who starts off with his tools as his special skill set. Again, not a bad idea to have him with a, a significant amount of gray magic in his arsenal. But if you turn Edgar into a dragoon, if you give him a pair of dragoon boots and the dragon horn, which makes the jump continuous up to four times, and if he has a powerful enough lance, he does insane amounts of damage. So I think that's what it really comes down to with me, is that look, look at your looking at people's stats and saying, okay, this person is not really set up to be a mage, so why don't I equip them with an Esper like Siren, who teaches Mute, with Phantom, who, who teaches Vanish, which is a very advantageous thing to have in many cases. Set them up with those kind of spells, and then put my focus into tweaking their stats through relics or through their equipment so that their special abilities really shine. Yeah, that that that's that's exactly the the counter to uh, to uh, Will's point here is that yes, everyone can learn every spell in the game, but it's not a particularly effective or useful uh, um, use of time to uh, teach everyone all those spells. Shadow's useless of magic. Um, it's much, much better. So I ended up giving Shadow the Dragoon Boots just because uh, the amount of damage he was doing when he came back down with his sword uh, was really significant. But, like, just, to, I mean, to add on to that, uh, it's not just the stats for me. Um, a lot of a lot of it for me was just um, these characters are just you know much more fleshed out than any previous entry. Maybe mm, the, the, there's an argument for four, um, but certainly five or uh, three, two, and one. Um, these characters are really well defined, and a lot of the way I played them was to do with their personality. Like, uh, what would Sabin do in this scenario? Sabin would wouldn't... Punch like, Sabin is... <laughs> yeah, he's not a jot. He's, he's not a nerd who learns <laughs> magic and reads books and stuff. He, Sabin's a Street Fighter a, character. He's a, he's, yes. he's Guile from Street he Fighter. Has, he's he's just of a Street Fighter character to do <laughs> he's his got blitz. the haircut and everything to match. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna punch the ever li living poop out of it. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, you know, touching on that, I I really love um, those unique mechanics, like Sabin's like fighting game commands. Um, it ultimately, yes. Once you get bum rush, I'm just typing in the command for bum rush every single time, just because it's so powerful. Um, but like being able to do something else rather than 
uh, tapping X to hit attack every time with uh, characters. And, and knowing that it's not costing me MP, I think, is the other thing. Um, knowing that I can pull off a really powerful attack with uh, Sabin that can uh, destroy a really powerful enemy... But it's not costing me resources. All it do, all it all it comes down to is whether I've slipped, you know, my thumb slipped when uh, rolling um, uh, rolling across the D pad, and he he doesn't recognize the input. And he's not the only one. Like I, uh, I really love. Well, love <laughs> is a strong word. I kind of like the uh, Setzer's gambling wheel um, just because even though so many so times it comes up <laughs> n- comes yeah. comes up with nothing. And then the bloody Mimic does it as well. Setzer's one of my favorite characters. I absolutely adore him. One of the... He has some of the best equipment late game that you can kind of mess around with. In addition to the slot technique, he also has a pair of dice that's called the fixed dice in the... I know it's that's what it's called in the original. In some of the mm-hmm. other localizations, it might be different. If you use the offering relic, which is a pretty rare thing, you have to go to a very specific dungeon in order to get it. So you do have to put in some effort to get that specific relic. The offering would normally, because it it lets you cast whatever fight command or or whatever four times normally it would cut every attack into fourths basically the fixed dice is one of those odd weapons where that doesn't happen so you can cast his fixed dice four times in a row and his damage output is ridiculous it's it's absolutely insane the fixed dice is one of the reasons why i have Cesar with me through most of the second half of the game like as soon as i get him like all right let's go get the offering and let's go get the fixed dice because he is going to outclass almost every other character in his damage the randomness makes him not as strong of a character to have in the final dungeon but pretty much everything up to that point you can always count on reliable damage from him that would i would say is is Setzer's big saving grace is having the offering of the fixed dice on him and decent equipment to support him. Yeah, I what I'll <laughs> what I'll say is that's kind of um a a great example actually of different ways that you can approach things because I never would have thought to do that with Setzer. I had the offering as well, but I had mine on Sabin because he could put very powerful claws on either hand. So I had his relic set up as um, the um, as I, I don't remember what the one is called. I think it's the Genji glove that allows you to equip a weapon in each hand. And then the offering yeah, the Genji glove is, is yeah, that and then the offering, which allows you to attack four times. So he was hitting eight times on just his normal attack. And that was a really effective strategy that, that I had in, in my party, but like there, there are a lot of ways that you can set that up with very similar things. And, and these, these insanely powerful relics that we're talking about are not, uh, as, as Maya was saying, are not things that you just kind of run into along the way. They're things that you kind of have to go and do these side missions and do these additional things to find. And if you go to that trouble, then 
you are getting a lot out of it because, you know, you are getting these things that can make your characters into even bigger powerhouses than they already are. Do you remember how you get that gem box? Like, which, that's at the top of that magic tower. Yeah. Which is a hellish yeah. place to go up to. And then you fight the boss at the top of that, who's, in my mind, having done basically everything in this, was probably the hardest fight in the entire game because everybody was casting magic for reflecting off each other. And then when you kill him, he does that back attack that destroys the entirety of your party unless you've used the reviver file on them. So that was a nightmare trying to get that damn thing. For that tower specifically, I like to bring Mog up there, not because he is especially good at casting spells or even that he has the equipment at that point to, to have the defense, but because you can equip the Moogle charm on him, which nullifies any random encounters. And it makes the way down the tower so much easier. Mm, yeah. Now that did yeah. feel like cheating when I was using that thing. <laughs> well, that, that I don't was think like it's the one step all. too I... far was like, nah, I kind of want those magic points. Oh no, I totally <laughs> abused the Moogle charm to the hill. Like that's one of the things. And again, Mog is the only one who is unique to the Moogle charm. He is the only one that can equip it. But it is so amazing because you can go into areas that you're not supposed to and get all sorts of really great armor and weapons and relics well before you're supposed to and it's it's great i love utilizing mog specifically for that purpose i don't think it's cheating at all this game is hard (laughs) and you need all the advantages you can get I will say that I I did not use Mog very often for that, just because I was trying to get all of the kind of experience that I could. But that said, I was using a console that would have allowed me to roll back my save if something really bad had happened. So I I did not, as I I kind of said before, I didn't really end up needing to use that very much. But um, the option was there if something had happened. If I had gone all the way up that tower and then, you know, without being able to skip all of the uh, all of the encounters and then I had gotten to the top or even worse gotten to the top and then gotten almost all the way back down and gotten wiped out I would definitely feel differently but um, yeah I, I just had a different backup strat I think I want to talk about we've, we've talked a lot about the, the characters mechanics but um, one, one this this game really caught me off guard I, I'll start us off with my my own experiences of this but the individual character stories, some of them really got to me. Cyan, well, first of all, his family dies, as John John mentioned, and there's that whole uh, nightmare. On screen. Yeah, yeah. And there's that whole nightmare sequence in, in the world of Ruin. A moment which really surprised me with its subtlety, given that how goofy the sequence is, is before that. So there's a sequence in the game where you're effectively riding a ghost train and it's all like, you know, goofy, spooky ghosts, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, it's a ghost train. And then, as we mentioned, Sabin uh, uh, suplexes the train mm-hmm. and it's all fun and games. But then you see the spirits of uh, his wife and child boarding boarding the train it's just the image of him running after the train not saying anything he doesn't say anything he just runs after the train to get a, a sight of his wife and daughter one last time and then his head sinks and it really moved me yeah, it's, and like it's heartbreaking yeah and 
I, I, I think the thing that impressed me was just how much they managed to convey with the sprites because they have a limited amount of animations and, and, and what have you to convey emotion with, with what they, what they have here, but they do, they managed to do it so effectively. Um, that was one scene. The other one is, um, the scene with, uh, Setzer when he's take, so, um, uh, before the world of ruin, his his uh, his airship gets destroyed. So he's taking you to uh, a new airship um, that he's got squirreled away. And then, as you're descending into the cave where this new airship is, it has um, images of the past and and who this airship belonged to, his friend um, that we've mentioned already, and and their relationship. And it was so effectively done. Just having that backstory conveyed as you descend into the cave, um, yeah, it just it really got to me. You're basically uh, in the the scene with Setzer that you're you're basically descending into his memories. It's a really powerful, very effective way to tell that. I absolutely adored that scene. Of course, even though I don't generally prefer playing as Cyan, and you know, I don't really keep him in my party that much. He's got one of the best character arcs in the whole game. And a lot of that comes down to what you said, Josh. They're able to pack so much emotive qualities in these little sprites. It, they, it could be just something as simple as a character winking or lowering their head or taking a knee when something really, you know, hits them in a, in a strong emotional way. There's a lot that they convey with a very with limited animation ca- capabilities. There is a very famous scene in this game where Celeste has to take the place of a famous opera singer, do which is kind of a neat game mechanic too because it requires a little bit of effort on the player. You have to memorize her lines so that you don't mess up the scene. You have to memorize blocking so that the theatrical performance can go on without a hitch. First of all, the music is amazing. It's so powerful. And I cry every time I play this scene, no matter how many times I've played it in the past, it still gets to me. And there's this lovely part right at the end where she throws a bouquet of flowers off of the balcony of this castle. I just think visually it's very impressive, but also it's it's pretty fitting for her. She's kind of, you know, and, and it also parallels what Leah had mentioned before which is the scene where she goes to the cliff and she's given up all hope and throws herself off of the cliff. It makes this great visual parallel for the first part of the game and the second. So I think that is some really powerful stuff. And the whole scene really conveys her own feelings and her own wishes and dreams and how she is starting to have feelings for for a certain character but she can't really express it and this is really her only way to do that it's uh it's very powerful so i just all of all of that stuff i think is great and i'll leave some of the other characters to john and leah <laughs> i don't know if it's really come up yet but how Celes' character is one of the three generals of the empire at the beginning and sort of slowly gets pulled over to the um to the remainers and it even par- sort of parallels that in the opera when she's you know she's got these two is it two like loves and one of them's gone and the other one 
I can't remember what happens exactly. Does one of them kill the other one? One of them is suspected to be dead. Like, he disappears and they assume that he has died. And then she basically gets folded into the warring power that has basically taken control. So everything about her old way of life is going away. The the character, that is. Not not Celis, at least not at this point in the game. And she is now betrothed to a different man who she's not really in love with. That's almost like what the the opposite of what's happening in the story at that point. That's almost as if that could have been the way that she originally got sucked into the Empire, kind of against her will and because something else went wrong and now she's there and she's not happy about it. It just everything about that scene is so poignant and as you say, you know, I can it shouldn't be as moving as it is because it sounds so silly on the SNES chip, like the the voices in it sound like somebody burp talking when they're singing. It's this kind of really low sort of rumbling noise, but it's it's beautiful at exactly the same time. Like it shouldn't be as moving as it is, but it, it all comes together so well. Celeste is uh, is my favorite character in the game. Um, I I really think that she is well written, and I I find her kind of backstory. And she goes through so much in this game. You find out. We've mentioned that she is one of the uh, the Empire's generals who comes over to the, uh, the the side of the Returners, and she first of all she is kind of a genetically engineered person, um, which is why she can use magic and why you know just kind of where she's coming from there, and you know she faces suspicion from and. Probably rightly so. I mean, you would be suspicious of a character in her position. But, you know, you you see her kind of being heavily suspected by the people she's trying to help. She gets tortured. Her surrogate father dies in front of her because she fails to do anything about it. She tries to commit suicide. She's, you know, filling in for an opera singer. She it's she goes through so much and it doesn't seem like they really tried to make her, especially in this early time period, there is a very real danger of female characters being the love interest or the mage or whatever. And as a character, mechanically, she, you know, like any of the others, can be built more or less however you would like for her to be. Um, but as to how she's written, there are definitely uh, kind of musings about relationships with her, but it, it doesn't end up in a, you know, oh, it's happily ever after because now she's married to Locke and everything is great. You know, it, it that's not a focus, I, I think. You, you know, you get kind of those illusions in there, but that's not why she's there. She's there because she is a powerful ally coming from where she comes from. And she has, you know, knowledge and a reason to be there beyond she's there to uh, to be a relationship or she's there to, you know, because she couldn't cut it in the Empire. No, she cut it very well, in fact. And now she is uh, she's kind of doing the trying to make it right. She holds on to her hope as well. That's the thing that I think kind of caps it all off is that even in spite of all of the things that have happened to her and quite tragic things that have happened to her at the end of her journey, she has held on to her hope that she would see her friends again, that they would prevail against Kafka. And that is what's kept her going on. And that's one of the strongest messages in the game. And your point about, you know, strong female characters uh, in my mind, she is the other main character of this between Terra and mm-hmm. Sellers. 
they're the two that you kind of get the most personal time with. I kind of want to touch on Shadow a little bit as well, because he's got a really interesting backstory as well. He's kind of your ninja for hire for the first half of the game. Um, and it's also very, I think it's, it's, it's made pretty clear from certain directions in the game that up to a certain point, Shadow will sometimes completely leave your party mm-hmm. without any kind of warning. And it's just, he can do it at any, at almost any time, uh, totally randomly, which is a little obnoxious if you're, <laughs> if you're not playing on an emulator or if you don't have something that has a save state where you can go back and say, oh, no, let's get Shadow back. So there are certain instances in the game where that can happen. Much like a ninja, he kind of comes and goes with wind. He does what he wants. At some point in the game, you start getting access to his memories of his past before he took on the Shadow persona and before he put on the ninja garb. Every time you go sleep in an inn, with him in your party or use a tent, I believe, there's a small chance that you will have this little flashback involving something from Shadow's past. And that fills in a little bit of his backstory, but it also heavily implies that he has some relation to Rel. And you find out later on, I think, through dialogue and maybe it's a line in in one of the dreams as well, that his name is actually Clyde Aroni which Aroni is Realm's last name. So throughout the course of the story, you find out that Shadow is basically Realm's father who abandoned her at a young age, took off to do whatever he was going to do as a, as a wandering ninja, somebody for hire, basically a mercenary for hire. It's so nice to see that all kind of come together. Like I love the fact that he you don't get him as a permanent character unless you specifically let him live at the end of the the first part of the game because you could very easily leave him on that floating continent and he's gone forever but if you wait and you're patient and you let him join back up with you he will and you you know go back and find him in the world of ruin he is totally loyal to you for the rest of the game and he will have a little bit of, of a chance to reconcile with his estranged daughter, which I thought was really great. I did not know that about uh, about Shadow and Realm. Like Leah, I had no idea about any of that. And that is extremely cool. I, I love it. Let's talk about Kefka. The previous antagonist we had in the series was um, the very memorable and uh, deep character X-Death. No, wait, don't remind me what was his real <laughs> name again. It's right there. Nah, I don't know. I don't care. You fight a big tree. Spoilers for the end of Final Fantasy V. <laughs> yeah. As I expressed um, in in that issue, not 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 big fan of X-Death. <laughs> you don't say. Pretty... Pretty, pretty rubbish uh, character. Kafka's kind of is such a breath of fresh air um, compared to him. That's not to say, like, I don't actually think Kafka is that complicated as a villain. He is, uh, if if we're going to massively simplify him, he is basically the Joker, Mm -hmm. um, Mm. Batman's Joker. However... Having a man who is sadistic, a, a, a human being, not some ancient evil, not some demigod, not some blah, 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 a mortal man 
who is sadistic and, and evil in all these ways and, and, and psychopathic is just so much more compelling um, than and than ex-death uh, tree man. Um, it's just, it, it's instantly, and he's got more personality, he's got more flair, his characters are, uh, character design is more appealing. Um, yeah, I, I really like Kefka. I wonder how much of the... Um the localization of Kefka was influenced because this would have been while this localization was going on, it would have been not too far after the first, uh, the, the Jack Nicholson Joker in, in the Michael Keaton Batman movie. The first one, I think that was 91. I want to say it was, it was, you know, no, maybe it was earlier than that. Yeah. It was like 89. Or was it? Okay. But still, I mean, that's, that's not that far after. Um, so I, I just wonder how, how much influence that would have had. Well, there was the animated series too. I think that True. Joker was yeah. quite iconic too. And that would have been around 91, 92. So I would say probably quite a lot because that borrows pretty heavily from that type of personality. Like you were saying, no, he's not the most complicated character, but I would argue he's one of the most entertaining villains of um, yeah. of this entire series. He is so much, he is so evil, and yet he is so much fun. Possibly because he's evil and he knows it, and he loves every single second of it. He relishes in it. I think it's also kind of interesting that Kafka is a bit of a nihilist. Like, he does things... Yes. Because he essentially finds life meaningless, which is a, a yeah. very different take for a villain to have. He's not necessarily trying to take over the world or gain power. He's doing it simply because he can and simply because he doesn't think that life has any meaning aside from that. It's essentially like, you're all my playthings, so I'm going to have fun with you in whatever way that I can. It, his primary motivation seems to be boredom um, for for a lot of, for a lot of this game. Like, why why do it this way when this way is more fun? You know, at the midpoint of the game, when you're on the floating continent, um, you're you're warned a lot during the the first half of the game that messing around with the statues on the floating continent could have catastrophic. Uh, consequences. Now, I'm like I imagine at the time when when people were playing this and they didn't know what was going to happen. This probably felt like the finale of the of the game. Um, uh, you could you can spend long enough in the world of balance, conceivably, for you to feel like the game's coming to a close and this is the final the final battle. So, like I I just the the bravery of storytelling here to go yeah no you failed and uh, Kefka destroyed the world and properly destroyed the world um, like you pan back and see the planet catch on fire and continents crack in half um, and and then to wake up as, as Celeste and and uh, be in this ruined world. And Nobuo Uematsu's... Uh, we haven't talked enough about how great Nobuo Uematsu's soundtrack is for this game. But like that music that starts playing when you first enter the world of ruin and you're wandering around this island and you get into enemy encounters, but the enemies instantly die because 
the atmosphere is too toxic or, or something like that. Um, just really hammering home that, yeah, you guys failed. This isn't your typical story where everything goes right. Um, the world is in ruins. What, what's left is fighting for the hope that there's a better tomorrow um, in the wreckage of the the world that was. And like... <sighs> That's what ultimately makes Kefka special for me is that like into as a character, he is effectively just the Joker, um, which is still more interesting than villains that came before. But it's this decision that I think separates him from most villains is that they went all the way that his nihilism ultimately for you know, for for that, you know, end of the second act, effectively, his nihilism wins out and he gets he gets to have his playground um, where life is meaningless and life is starting to decay. Um, how, how do you how do you how do you all feel about this? This twist? I, I just love the little moments that come with it. Like when you meet Kefka at numerous points during the beginning of the game and he's just kind of an idiot and a goof and he has the the almost silly comical circus music that's his main theme when you see him and you engage in battle with him a handful of times and he sort of talks himself up and then you hit him twice and he literally falls on his ass and runs off or you know he's he walks away and he trips over as he walks away I mean, he is actually dressed as a clown. You know, he, he it's it's yeah. you know what? I think I've revised my opinion. I, I wonder how much Heath Ledger took from from Final Fantasy six. But yeah, it, it just comes to this point where then you get to the end of the game and you go up his tower and you've got that same comical, silly clown music that, you know, was sort of a, you know, 75 second loop that's now been turned into like a 20 minute long you know operatic piece of rock music that plays as you as you fight all the bosses before him and then at the top of the tower he's a he's basically an angel descends from the heavens to to be the final boss it's the arc of it is incredible yeah he looks positively heavenly in his Mm. final form when you go up against him and it's such a huge contrast to every other version that you've that you see of him up to that point it's really the artwork is very beautiful and dancing mad the piece of music that you're referring to that is this multi-layered multi movement it's a rock opera it, it, it's it like a progressive a rock, rock opera. opera and i i know it's, i have mentioned this before and i will mention it again distant worlds does some fantastic orchestral arrangements of final fantasy music their arrangement of dancing mad is a revelation it is so incredible like this is this is a great piece of music by itself just mm-hmm. on the original you know chiptunes um uh, 16-bit version that it was created in with a full orchestra and uh synthesizers and electric guitar put behind it it really comes together it it's fully fleshed out mm-hmm. there's a full orchestra behind it a full um choir behind it so all of the vocal tracks sound much more fleshed out and it's it'll give you goosebumps it's it's really amazing to listen to it's a very long track it's about 10 minutes to hear the whole thing from start to finish but i would highly recommend checking out the distant worlds arrangement of dancing mad because it's absolutely fantastic i think it's a perfect way to represent kefka as a character it's 
it goes all over the place. At once, at one moment, it's very serene and calm. And the next minute, it's a beat and jaunty. And it's, you know, almost comical sounding, like you were saying. And then the very end of it is just this huge, like, choral, you know, you almost feel like you're in a cathedral or something, because it's like, like, the this angel has just descended from the heavens and it's got the choir to back it up and, and all of that. So it's such a great way to represent him as a character. As we're, as we're covering music, um, I just wanted to read out this uh, forum post from Craig. The music was part of my formative years. Um, I would load up WinApp with the soundtrack in MIDI form, stick on my headphones and be engrossed. It's as dramatic as it is playful, unified as it is varied, triumphant as it is harrowing. The piano collection based on these tracks is a wonderful album, showing how the melodies and harmonies still shine while being stripped to their bare bones and later orchestrated versions show that they can excel in their bombast. But it's important to remember just how considered these tracks are in the game. The careful use of sound fonts gives everything a sound which doesn't uh, sound constrained by the SNES hardware, but rather leans into what it can do. Even with the unbelievable scope Uematsu had with leitmotifs, opera, and huge prog rock influences, you can practically see Rick Wakeman in his cape playing the keyboard in the final boss music. Uh, the attention to detail is also astounding. Take, for example, the soundscape created in the percussion for Nash. It includes a breathy sound which adds to the huge unease of the track. It's unclear whether it's an exacerbated sigh or a release of steam playing into the themes of unrest and blurred lines between the biological and the natural world. It is something that is unlikely to be seen in a soundtrack which must abide by hardware limits, but it's clear they went above and beyond to set the mood. This soundtrack is also important for me as it set me on the track to making music myself. In those days of MIDI files for soundtracks, you could import these files into the music notation software, um, Syllabus. From here, I would look at the tracks and in I enjoyed and stuck with me so deeply. Why does this part sound so dramatic? How did they make this part stand out so much? What would happen if I changed this? I would be doing very basic music analysis on these tracks, using them to make my own, admittedly, rip-offs at the time. I always remember spending a Sunday comparing Edgar's theme with the coin song. At its core, they are the same, but I was fascinated in, in how and why they managed to portray such dramatically different feelings. This game helped me to look deeper into music and to consider harmony, texture, and melody at an important time in my development. I listen to these soundtracks a lot. The um, uh, Maya mentioned specifically the um, Distant Worlds uh, soundtracks, which are available on Spotify, and I highly recommend them. So uh, in terms of gameplay, um, we've kind of, um, with the story and, and uh, mechanic stuff, we've kind of gone in and out and um, talked about it holistically. Um, but we haven't touched on uh, the dungeon design in this, in this game, which, you know, for the most part, um, it, it, you know, 
eight times out of ten, uh, it kind of functions like uh, most other Final Fantasy games that we've played. But there are a few instances where uh, Final Fantasy VI actually takes a unique approach to dungeon design, where there are multiple parties um, that you have to control and navigate through uh, through the dungeon. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is about clearing clearing paths so that the other party can get through, and slowly solving this big puzzle box that the the dungeon represents. Um, how do we feel about this this system? Um, it, it is worth mentioning that I, unless unless I'm mistaken, this never crops up again. Um, this 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 approach to dungeon design. This is very very much unique to Final Fantasy VI. So how did we, how did I'm we trying all to think feel if there's anything this? that I know about that happens in later games? And I think you're right. I don't think this comes back. Seven, I think, is the only thing that even comes close, and technically, it's a mini game. Oh, eight. There's there's something at the very end of eight. Sorry, yeah. And there was one dungeon in five where I think you had to split up between a party that was going to use magic and a party that was going to use physical attacks. That that is true. I think I think with five because there was only four characters effectively it was a much simpler version because in that tower you're literally just scaling up one side and then scaling up the other and that was it so it, it, it whereas with this like it's much more intricate like you're you're having to coordinate them and make sure you know one party's you know sitting on this this panel so that the other party can get through a door and then you have to line up all of them on the same panels to open one door um i there i think there are, as as you you two have mentioned um, you three, sorry, uh, you three have mentioned there are examples later on in the in the series of of this, but I don't think I don't I, I think I still stand by my point of this being unique because I don't think any other entry did it with this level of complexity and also with this frequency. As you say, it's certainly a huge step up from the the tower in the previous game. Yeah. But it, it kind of just tied into the idea here of, as opposed to in was it Final Fantasy Four, where you had a you always had five people in your party, but they just they'd use kind of cheap tricks to cycle people in and out. Instead of here, it feels like for you know the longest point of this game, I had more than four people that I could pick from, but I had to choose the four that I wanted to take. And it's not its not quite as intricate as something like, say, well, I mean, you know, sort of comparing it to a game from 15 years later. But, you know, if you have something like Mass Effect and you take your, your other two characters and then you can sort of stand in a certain point at the Citadel and there'll be conversation dialogue between the two people that you've got. And it's that thing of, well, you, you'd only get this with these two people out of, you know, six that you can choose from. It's it's not quite on that level, but it's it's a huge step up from anything that we've seen previously, and it's a much more player controlled system. And it's a, a, apart from the point, the you know this the way that it works, where you've said you pick your you know split your party up and take them. It, it gets you quite early in the game, where 
there's a point where your characters get split up by, I think they're on a raft and it, it breaks apart and they all get split. And you have to pick basically between these three different scenarios of where your party has ended up. And I thought, you know, I got this first sort of choice of whatever it is you choose, two people together somewhere, two people somewhere else, one person on their own. I made that first choice thinking, well, this is going to last 10 minutes and then we'll all be back together. You know, it's going to be an hour of gameplay before everybody's all joined the party again. And that felt, I, it probably didn't, but that felt like it was yeah, a significant portion of that first section of the game where you were just going through these characters. And by the time I'd gotten to the third one, I was, you know, really quite anxious as to what happened to Sabin when he got swept off in the in the water. <laughs> I've not seen him for like eight hours. I, I want to get back to this. So it made it made it feel really personal, like the way that you chose the story. And I, it probably doesn't, but it it made me wonder if there was any differences between like which which order you did these three different scenarios and stuff in. So and that, like I say, that's probably I don't know, maybe three or four hours into the game that happens, and it just felt like this huge event that I wasn't prepared for at all to have to make choices between which people I was going to go along with. Story-wise, it doesn't make a huge difference who you choose first or second, but the items and, in a lot of cases, the equipment that you end up with, depending on what scenario you choose first, second, and third, can make a huge difference. Um, so, for instance, in that lineup, choosing to do Locke's scenario last makes that section a heck of a lot easier if you've already done the previous two, because now you have access to a lot more weapons, a lot more resources a lot uh, you know different types of relics so i think that is where the major difference lies in making the choices between those three right that makes sense in that crazy way that you can pick up an item and then equip it on a party member who's <laughs> nowhere near the person who picked it up but yeah i hadn't i hadn't thought about that i think i did locks one first that must have been so hard oh my goodness i can't imagine doing his scenario first I appreciate the non-linearity of that specific part of the game, but also the amount to which you can customize the heck out of your team. I really appreciate that specifically in this game because there's a whole lot you can do. A lot of different kind of compelling ways you can play with your characters depending on what team they're in and what sort of relics or equipment you have on them. So the idea that you can switch back and forth between two different teams adds to that because you have, um, presumably you have an array of people to choose from, all with their own special skills, and then you can tweak their abilities in various ways. I really enjoyed that. I think it lended a lot to not only the replayability of the game, but also how much you can customize it, how much you can vary specifically to your own preference of, of playstyle. Okay, um, I think we're going to uh, move on to our forum contributors. Okay, this for, uh, first uh, forum post from uh, Magical Isopod. Final Fantasy VI is, in my mind, both a great game and a mixed bag. The story starts off really strong. It gives off an entrancing aura of mystery and fantasy that feels incredibly alluring and drives you forward into the unknown. Who is Terra? What was the frozen monster in Nash? What stake does Locke have in all of this? 
What is the resistance? Why is the Empire a threat to this world? The opening to this game bombards you with open-ended questions, and the first few hours are truly an adventure. The next section of the story, something I generally refer to as the split, where your party is divided in three, is where the game starts to lose focus a little. The three different mini-stories are all good and run a wide range of emotional notes, this is where a lot of the character building happens. Everyone grows, improves their combat skills, finds new allies, and the resistance against the evil empire suddenly feels like an army. But the story always loses me when everything comes back together. Kafka murders the big bad and goes from colourful henchman to evil antagonist. Not a bad angle, to be sure, but for me, this is when the game becomes a little too dour and sadistic. Kafka is simply an irredeemable monster. Earlier in the game, he's portrayed as posh, petty, and a bit of a spoiled brat in a sorcerer's body. But once Kefka takes the lead, he just becomes a destructive psychopath. His persona changes entirely. Um, Ed, Ed, just me jumping in, not entirely sure I agree with that point. But uh, yeah, I, I, for example, one moment we didn't talk about uh, uh, the poisoning of Doma Castle, exactly, uh, where he ki kills everyone in that in uh, in the uh, fortress. Um, that's that's him being a psychopath. I, I think he was always a psychopath. But anyway, and he becomes terrifyingly brutal. His pursuit of destruction and power is not really explained, and while you can feel his ominous presence pressing down on you as a player, it feels very much at odds with what the story was leading up to. Following Kefka's seizure of the spotlight, the party faces a series of hard losses and minor victories, culminating in the World of Ruin segment, where the world we've been exploring the entire game is torn asunder and replaced with a broken hellscape. What started as a fun adventure full of mystery has by this point become a depressing slog. I will credit the game for succeeding in manipulating my emotions so effectively but the latter half of Final Fantasy Fancy Fit 6 just feels so cynical and downbeat that it doesn't bring me much joy at all. The mysteries I was promised at the beginning of the game are resolved, but with very little enthusiasm and in very dull language. The final battle feels less like a heroic journey and more like a desperate struggle to make things less terrible. I am generally positive on Final Fantasy VI, but I feel like it's sandwiched between two superior games, both in tone and style. Final Fantasy V, a simple joyride through a generally fun story with a great villain and uh, okay uh, and a heartwarming optimistic protagonist Final Fantasy 7 dives straight into the darkness with a very threatening and downbeat story but it never loses the sense of hope that pushes the main characters through an incredible adventure Final Fantasy 6 is to me a game about defeat there is no light in the darkness. It's a game about building up your joy and expectations, then smashing them like a glass vase. Playing this game brings me no joy. It's an exploration of darkness. If 5, 6, and 7 were a trilogy, 6 is definitely The Empire Strikes Back. It just leaves me feeling so profoundly hopeless that I have difficulty saying I love it. And the boring gameplay by late game only serves to highlight the intense nihilism this game so effortlessly stirs. 
Interesting post. Um, much more negative take than um, than ours. I would counter and say that I actually think this game is an argument against nihilism and in fact trying to find hope and find to try and mm. fer- find purpose even in a ruined world and um you know to date this podcast like i'm i find that really inspirational right now uh the idea of you know let's fight for a better future even though it really sucks vote, right vote, now vote 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 I, i'm done yes yeah. this, this- also kind of makes me wonder like did this person uh, no offense to this particular forum poster but if have he played the entire game all the way through to the end and seen the end credits because there is absolutely a message of hope in the sense that things are going to continue on and that things are going to get better especially when the end credits roll you see people rebuilding in the various towns around the world and there are there's two characters called Dwayne and uh, Katarine that are expecting a baby. They're they're two of the children that Tara at one point kind of takes up and and acts like a, a sort of a mother figure too. The baby that they have at the end of the game, at the end of this credit sequence, is basically that symbol. It is we have brought new life into the world, and it will go on. It will continue. This is that is exactly that symbol of hope and the sense that we can carry on if new life can be brought into this world. Mr. Lixalite, Mr. Ixalite says, replaying Final Fantasy VI in preparation for the podcast, I was surprised how dull I found the first stretch of the game. Not so much because the individual character's abilities are more limited than in some of the other games, but because said abilities are quite overpowered. For a good chunk of the game, it feels like every major battle was a matter of waiting for Edgar's auto-crossbow or Sabin's blitz moves, which could wipe out enemies in an instant at no cost. Overall, the difficulty of the game and series has taken a sharp drop, but things do get more interesting once Magicite gets introduced. However, I found this system flawed as well. First, you need to wait for the system to get introduced, then you need to equip an Esper, then you need to grind, and only then do you get the Magicite's abilities. As a result, the system discourages experimentation and casual swapping in favour of sticking it out with a particular Esper. On the flip side, once you've learned a spell, there's no restrictions at all, and every learned spell can be used from then on. On the surface, this is fine, but it creates a push towards making your characters clones, as the most useful Espers will be continuously swapped around between them, especially early on, when there's not so many espers to go around. There's simply no reason not to teach every character cure, raise, and so on. You have to go out of your way to make diverse parties instead of the other way around. Being the seventh game in the series that I played, I just don't think Final Fantasy VI could ever have lived up to the hype of best in the series for me. Though undoubtedly revolutionary for its time, for me, later games had it beat in terms of setting, characters, story, music and even villain and its immediate predecessor trumped it in pure gameplay terms ultimately i think final fantasy 6 is an okay game which feels a bit like saying the godfather is a decent movie 
All right, our next piece of correspondence is from Ryan Mega 2 who says, I first played Final Fantasy VI in the summer of 2015 after I had just moved to Edmonton and was working for the summer. I played the PlayStation version that came on the Final Fantasy Anthology. Not the best version of the game, apparently, but it was the one I had. At the time, I had been on a Final Fantasy kick for about two years, starting with the Steam version of FF7 when that came out, and then going on to the PS1 version of Final Fantasy V, Final Fantasy X, and then Final Fantasy VIII on the original hardware, and I think I played a bit of Final Fantasy XII as well. Going into this, I had a lot of high expectations, given that this seems to be the consensus pick for best Final Fantasy game right now, and like I said, I had absolutely loved Final Fantasy VII, VIII, and X, and so I was quite excited to play this game after work for the course of several weeks. I remember during this period, I was alternating between Final Fantasy VI and Halo 2 while watching old reruns of Law & Order. I nearly always watch TV when playing video games. In general, I enjoyed the game quite a lot. And while I probably enjoy it less than the 7th, 8th, and 10th series, entries, it is still an extremely good game with excellent gameplay, plot, and character development. The one big flaw I do remember is that the PS1 version has an absolutely terrible translation, and I would strongly recommend against playing that particular version. Two things stand out to me most in my memory. First is that this probably has the second best gameplay in the series behind only FF10. I'm not as big a fan of the job system in 5 as some people are. With the classic turn-based gameplay that that series never should have went away from and really interesting class system where the gameplay of the characters really feel distinct from each other. My biggest sticking point with Final Fantasy 7 and 8 is that the characters really do play the same. Mm. The other thing that really stands out in my memory is the final area where you confront Kefka, which forces you to use all your characters to complete that final dungeon, something I really wish other Final Fantasy games would do, and probably the single coolest looking boss fight in all of video games. The art for Kefka is absolutely gorgeous. In summary, while this game did not completely live up to its reputation, it is still a great RPG which everyone needs to play. So this is from Pale Avenger. I was lucky to be able to pick up a shiny new SNES classic for my birthday. Besides Super Metroid, the game I was most excited to get my hands on was Final Fantasy. I've tried my hand on JRPGs a few times, and always bounced off them. But I had heard so many good things about Final Fantasy VI, that I figured if anything could get me into the genre, this would be the game to do it. And playing it for the podcast would be the perfect motivation to actually finish the thing. While I still wouldn't say that I'm going to become a JRPG regular anytime soon, I'm very glad to have played this one. There's so much to like. The character sprites and environmental design are really attractive, even coming to them fresh in 2018. The music ranges from functional to absolutely wonderful. There is a great variety of characters and powers to suit many different playstyles. My complaints are few and minor, and mostly due to the era it's from. The battle music gets repetitive, the menus aren't that helpful, and it weakens some of the emotional impact when I caught on to the way the dialogue leaned on saying character name, ellipses, to express a range of emotions. Lock. <laughs> I don't know how to take that, so. But those are petty gripes for a 25-year-old game. More memorable is how surprisingly deep some of the characters are, and how affecting their journey can be. I choked up watching Cyan chase after the train, carrying the ghosts of his dead family. And I was heartbroken when Celis' old mentor slowly wasted away and died in his bed, leaving her alone on a desert island with all the world broken around her. I later realized that I could have saved Sid, but the moment was so perfectly tragic that I couldn't bear to reload an old save and change it. Genuinely touching moments like these are few and far between in video gaming, and they're a big part of why Final Fantasy VI is so special. Side note, did anyone actually manage to save Sid? I tried really hard, and I kept him alive for a long time, but I could never quite get him to the part where he was healed. 
in the past. I have done a couple of times, but I... I kind of agree, though. It has more of an emotional impact if he does die. That sounds a little messed up, but... <laughs> I think, yes, I, I totally agree, too. I think it's um, I think it's a much... Like, you completely miss that scene that we keep going back to where Celeste loses all hope and throws herself off the cliff. That doesn't happen if Sid lives. It's... Yeah, from it's, what I've heard, it's basically like he goes, hey, here's a raft, and she says, okay, and sets off. Basically, yes. Like, hey, I'm, I'm alive now, and I built this raft for you, so go out and find your friends. I think it does a lot to her character development, and it's a much more, it has much more of an emotional impact, like we've all said, if, if you either fail to save Sid or let him die. Sorry, Sid, I tried. I, I quite like the idea that Sid has died in at least half of the games that we've played yeah. so far. <laughs> He's just this <laughs> constantly doomed character. That will change in the next issue. <laughs> will says, in many ways, Final Fantasy VI was just a bit ahead of its time. The emphasis on open-world exploration would fit in well with RPGs today. The steampunk industrial revolution aesthetic likewise feels more of this moment than it did of the mid-1990s. Final Fantasy VI also gets some bonus points for representation with two female leads and one of the first briefly playable characters of colour in General Leo. In a series famously dominated by teenagers off to save the world, Final Fantasy VI is, unfortunately, the last to have any major characters older than about 40. It also aligns really well with the emerging internet culture of urban legends and glitches. Can you revive General Leo? Only with some crazy glitch work. What does Vanish X-Zone not kill? Not much. Who is Gogo really? My money is on either Daryl or Adelaide Stevenson. Playing today, Final Fantasy VI stands up for me as one of the crowning achievements of the 16-bit era. It's a game that hits me harder than it did when it came out, and about as hard as anything I've played since. The sprite work and sound design take my breath away. The stories are adult and evocative, and Kefka's up-jumped buffoonishness and pathological narcissism seem all too familiar as I'm following US politics <laughs> in 2018. Ultimately, Final Fantasy VI soars when it asks the player to do what each of the returners must, make meaning in their uncertain lives and find a way to go on despite personal tragedy and existential doubt. As a teenager, that just didn't seem badass enough. Today, I can't imagine a more resonant theme or a more lovely way to explore it. It's interesting that he comes on to some of the glitches because I read about quite a few of these earlier and they're, yeah, they're absolutely wild. Some of the things that you can do that completely trash the game. This thing about the idea that you can cast Vanish on an enemy and then some of those destruction spells like Doom and X-Zone will have a 100% chance of hitting them. And apparently you can do that to tons of the bosses and stuff at the same time. Uh, it just completely destroys any challenge that you have in the game. And there's some other really bizarre things. You can lose um, Interceptor, apparently, because yes. he's... Aww. Apparently Interceptor counts as a status effect. Yes. Which is a really weird way of looking at it. But he can he can get stuck on an enemy that then gets banished or, or X-zoned or something. And then he can never be recoverable. And there's a glitch 
Oh, God, it's weird, isn't it? Strago can do um, this, one of his lures that he can learn is called, uh, I think it's called Rippler, and it trades statuses, and that's where you can possibly lose Interceptor, is if your status, like, you, tr- the enemy trades a status with Shadow when he's active, that can possibly happen, and Vanish Doom and Vanish X-Zone also have, like, you can use it, and you can abuse it in a lot of cases, but in a lot of uh, in a lot of scenarios, using those spells in that combination are going to cause uh, it, it almost will break the game because it messes up with the run the random number generator that is built into the game. So, just a fair warning for anybody that hasn't yet played it: if you're going to go down that route, you can really mess up the code if you if you start doing these things. I've heard a similar thing with Realm, where she can use her sketch ability mm-hmm. on a creature that's been vanished, and because the creature's vanished, she kind of, for some reason, the game doesn't know what it's supposed to be sketching, and that completely bricks the game, and has apparently you can use that to to dupl- duplicate items and things, so you can get more than one gem box, but on the flip side, it can also completely brick your cartridge, like delete your save files, so... It sounds like these things aren't worth actually going after. I don't. <laughs> sounds yeah, like the, the negatives the, might be worse the, than the positives. Up against up against the chances of you completely destroying your game, I would say it's not worth it. Dusk versus Tweak says, in two thousand, I had already had my Nintendo sixty four for a few years, been a PC gamer since Commander Keen, and was impressed with screenshots of what the PS two was capable of. And yet, when I finally got around to playing Final Fantasy VI, my first Final Fantasy. My first J and non-J RPG, I was still knocked over by the quality. The pixel graphics were gorgeous and expressive, the music was atmospheric and memorable, and the characters stuck in my mind whenever I wasn't playing the game. Really, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't realise I could use summons until the last quarter of the game. My main combat party consisted of characters I thought were cool, which changed on a regular basis and had nothing to do with stats. Looking back, I still can't believe I beat the game, though my strategy of double-casting Ultimas for half the cost seemed to do the trick. Honestly, it's too difficult to put everything I love about this game down in words. The characters were a surrogate family, while my own house was going through a divorce. The music finally got me listening to game soundtracks in the outside world. The strategy guide was massive, and, with its beautiful artwork, a constant read for me. It's still my favourite Final Fantasy and one of my favourite games, period. One that I go back to every few years, probably because it's one of my favourite stories, feeling like the Lord of the Rings or the Star Wars of video games. I started and stopped this post many times, and looking back at this one, I still failed to give the game any sort of justice. Final Fantasy VI is special. The combination of story, pixel art, music and gameplay make this something that sticks with you. It's a masterpiece. Let's move on to our free word reviews. Um, you can send us your free word reviews um, at Kanan Rince on Twitter. Um, look out for us sending uh, a call out for those reviews um, whenever we're recording a podcast. Ben Parry says, oversized, unendearing cast. Will Cross Oh <laughs> Magical Isopod says nihilism, chaos, and hopelessness. That's four words. Cheating. <laughs> Some of these are definitely cheating. I, 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 you I'll make it an ampersand. Off. That's not technically a word. Yeah. Mr. Ixlite says 
the gear shift. Uh, Colin Alonso says epic but aged. Andy Rudrum says a beautiful relic. Eric Mickles says more octopus, please. Andrew Elmore says dancing mad forever. Uh, Sam Tick says best in genre. Nick Wirt says the definitive fantasy. And Oodles O'Hare says genre-defining classic. Thank you to everyone who sent their free word reviews. That just leaves us to summarize. Um, we are running over time, so I would ask the panel members to keep it short and sweet. But uh, let's start with John. Right. Um, yeah, I... I don't know what else I can say about this that hasn't been said already. Um, feels like it's been a long road for me getting to this point where this is very much the culmination of what I wanted to see in a Final Fantasy game. And I guess having previously only played the first one and wanted to play six, having heard so many good things over the years, I guess with each iteration since then that we've done over the last... Well, I guess it's a year now, basically. I've been playing these games for pretty much the entire year straight. Um, it's been sort of getting slowly closer and closer and closer to what I knew Final Fantasy VI was going to be like. And I have to say, I am completely impressed and completely satisfied with how this game has turned out and very, very happy that I decided to go through and play all of the other games in the series kind of getting to this point it's been a it's been a really wonderful journey coming up here and you know i'm very grateful for having had the opportunity from you guys on the team to to let someone who's essentially a you know an idiot who doesn't actually know what he's talking about come on and do this um but yeah i just i don't know what what i can say about this that's not completely effusive praise i thought the characters in it were you know, really wonderfully well-rounded and the storyline resonated in a way that none of the others have quite got to. And the music is absolutely something that I will be going to track down those CDs that I discussed earlier. And, you know, it's I, that, that overworld music has been in my head for many years because I've heard it before. And now I kind of have that context for it and the opening crawl of the game and the music. Just, the more I think about it, the more kind of I feel like I'm getting drunk on the game. And yeah, I would I would absolutely recommend this to anybody, especially because it's so easy to play it now with go and get a SNES Mini. If you haven't got one, you probably should. There's there's enough good games on that that justify it. And for me, just having the ability to sit here on my couch and play the the really nice looking version of this on the TV without any mucking about or emulation or dodgy fake controllers or anything. As, as it feels like it should have been played 25 years ago, it's, it, that justifies buying a SNES Mini on its own. So if you've listened to this and thought that it sounds up your alley, absolutely check it out. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Having played all the Final Fantasy games up to this point, this is the first one that we've covered for Ken and Rince, where I'm like, ah, they've nailed it. Like I, I, I couldn't help but think while while playing this game. Um, we we knew for a while that that Leon wouldn't be hosting this one, and I and I thought while playing this game, 
Man, it's a shame that Leon's not hosting this one because I think, um, like, out of all of the games we've covered, this this is the one that I think he had the best chance of actually. I think he's still going to play. Yeah. He says he is anyway. Yeah, I, I hope I hope so because I think this game. This is this is why we did it, right? For the game yeah. like this. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, the, we've we've we've. It's it's watching a creative team. It feels like watching a creative team slow build up to this this moment where everything comes together i like i have some niggles about this game but largely i really struggle to find anything to complain about which is such a stark uh a difference between you know this and, and the last game in the series that we covered um it's aesthetically just really beautiful like the art direction the music all of that stuff and i think honestly you know i i've played you know my experience with this series is more the playstation era i think that this game has held up better to the test of time than some of the games that we're going to be covering later on in my heart I still love Final Fantasy VII more just because that's the game I have more history with and and the soundtrack is emblazoned in my brain. Um, but if I'm recommending a Final Fantasy, I'd probably, you know, recommend this one over Seven, just because I think it's more perfectly formed. Um, it, it, it's... It, 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 yeah, it's it's just an astounding piece of work. Uh, this is a masterpiece class, I think. I love it. I love this game. I don't think that I am alone in seeing Final Fantasy, the, the Final Fantasy series as a whole, kind of not strictly separated into two halves, but kind of. One through six, there's a divide for me between one through six and, and seven onward. That's not a qualitative divide. It's just that they they play for me a little bit differently between the the fully 3D era and kind of the uh, the eight and sixteen bit games. That's not to say that they can't be compared because they certainly can be. Uh, that's not my intention here. My intention is mostly just to say that of this set of games one through six, I, I think that I can comfortably now say, and I don't know that I would have said this before, I probably would have said either four or five, but I think that I think that I can comfortably now say that I believe six is probably the best one of these. And I agree with Josh in that if I were going to recommend Final Fantasy, I think this is a really solid contender, um, especially of the earlier games. If that recommendation has kind of brought anything into my mind, it would be that you know, there there are a number of characters that I think really stand up that could probably be brought into more modern games and, and you know, stand up just fine. Uh, there are some things maybe that feel a little bit dated, but overall, I think that this feels like a team that has hit its stride at this point. This is the third Final Fantasy game on the Super Nintendo, and it feels that way. It's not a super late game, but it is getting towards the end of the SNES uh, kind of lifespan. And it feels that way. It feels like they have really nailed so much of what is in this game. Uh, the music and, and the way it looks and the way it plays and the story being as expansive and yet as well tied together as it is. I think this is a great experience overall. And I, I th there's so much that's that's 
interesting about the backstory of it, about what people have done with it. There are some fascinating speedruns. There's a lot of uh, commentary and just kind of deep dives into some of the characters. So, I mean, if you decide that you enjoy this and want to learn more about it, there's a lot that you can see. There's a lot that you can get into. It's it's very cool that way. And um, and even just as the game itself, it's it's really good. I agree with the you should probably get a SNES Mini if if you don't have one. They're apparently actually decently easy to find now. So, um, yeah, I, I do recommend and um, I'm I'm looking forward to continuing through this series, but I'm really glad that I did get to play this one again. Well, first of all, on a personal note, I just want to say how happy it makes me to hear so much positive uh, praise about this game, because as I mentioned several times, this is my absolute number one of all time. So hearing so many other people have a similar experience and fall in love with it as much as I have and as much as I still am, is it just fills me with so much joy. So I think that's great. To me, Final Fantasy VI isn't just a game, it's a culture. Everything that I love about my favorite games is in here. It's got the near-perfect balance of story and gameplay. The characters are relatable, likable, well-defined. The graphics are vivid, the score is masterful, and it has a high replay value, as evidenced by the many times that I have replayed this throughout its existence. All of these things combined make Final Fantasy VI a complete experience which is why it's remained my number one of all time for so long. I doubt that any game will ever be this important to me. Some have come very close, but it'll take something really special to beat out Final Fantasy VI. Others have mentioned already, I think it's absolutely worth revisiting. If you've never played it before or if it's been a while, I obviously recommend it. And I agree with a lot of our correspondents that this game is a masterpiece. Just... I I cannot praise it enough. I love this game forever. Thank you, everyone. And uh, yeah, it just it just leaves me, uh, Josh, to say thank you, John. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Maya. Uh, Maya, um, is there any upcoming films or anything like that um, that that people should look forward to seeing your work in? For those for those of you listening, uh, Maya Maya works as uh, you're yes. a stunt woman, um, and you and you've been involved in uh, uh, you know indie films like Captain America: Civil War <laughs> uh, and uh, little little watch TV shows like The Walking Dead. Um, is is there anything that you're working on that you can actually talk about that you're you're excited for people to see or anything like I that? I believe I I can say this now. I mean I I was in an early episode of the current season of The Walking Dead, which has probably already come and gone at this point. Um, so it was near the beginning of the of the series. Um, I did a lot of work on the movie Jungle Cruise, which is still like it just wrapped so that it, that one is not it's not going to be around for a while. But that's an upcoming Disney movie based on one of their park rides starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So had quite a bit of work in that. And also the second part of Avengers Infinity War is coming out very soon. And I you may be able to see me in that, but I know they're doing a lot of reshoots right now. So who knows? But I did work on it. So that is something exciting. I won't say exactly what I did, but uh, that is definitely something to 
look out for in the near future as far as my film work is concerned. She knows what happens. I'm not saying film, a damn she knows thing. <laughs> Again, like I mentioned up top, please uh, consider donating to our Patreon. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash Um You will get access to Unabridged Podcasts, which this one will definitely be one of those Unabridged Podcasts, <laughs> looking at the recording time. Uh, i really sorry, Ryan. Uh, sorry, Ryan. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Also worth considering um, our sister podcast, uh, <laughs> Sound of Play, um, where we play all of our favorite tracks from uh, various uh, games over the years. Very appropriate uh, for you know Final Fantasy VI with such a great soundtrack. If you love the music in this game, uh, to check out uh, Sound of Play, where we talk about um, music from all across the Final Fantasy series and other games. Um, so yeah, check that out. Um, so next time in issue 343, we go from the fourth generation to the eighth as we follow another leading lady trying to find her place in the wreckage of the old world in Horizon Zero Dawn. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>